This is a third episode of Season 3 of The Public Discourse, which has been devoted to exploring aspects of the vision of oneness, presented by Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of the Prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith, who passed away 100 years ago. One of the principles of the Baha'i Faith is the fundamental equality of women and men, and this was a theme Abdu'l-Bahá frequently emphasized in his writings and public talks. This episode of The Public Discourse features a live conversation between several guests who spoke at a webinar organized by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs in partnership with several other civil society groups to mark the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. The speakers examine the role of religion in the elimination of violence against women. We hope you enjoy the conversation. friends, welcome to today's panel. I'm delighted to welcome so many of you here today to delve into the timely question of the role of religion in eradicating violence against women. This event is hosted by the Office of Public Affairs of the Baha'i Community of Canada. In addition, four organizations have supported it, the Southern Chiefs Organization, the Stop Violence Against Women Coordinating Committee of Perth County, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, and the Canadian Council of Muslim Women. My name is Afsoon Hushidari, and I will be acting as your moderator today. I work as legal counsel for the federal government, initially at the Department of Justice, and now with the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada, though these days I have the privilege of being a full-time mother to our 12-month-old daughter. The impact of the pandemic has been far reaching in our lives, but one of its blessings is that we can all gather together from many different places. I would like to acknowledge the land on which I stand today, the treaty lands and territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, in particular the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and the Ojibwe Chippewa peoples. I am grateful to welcome you from this land. The word religion comes from the Latin religio, which means to link or to connect. So this afternoon, we will consider how this binding together of people, of men and women, of the human and the divine, can contribute to eradicating one of the greatest ills plaguing society today, violence against women. The elimination of this great injustice cannot be achieved through changes in law and policy alone. Those are things that are themselves informed by the cultures, attitudes, and beliefs of the people who together form our society. And it is religion that informs these attitudes and behaviors so strongly for so many. So let us delve deep today through the insights of our distinguished panelists into the following questions. Guided by the belief that the equality of men and women is not only a desirable social condition, but also a spiritual truth, how can religious communities contribute to rethinking the underlying causes of violence against women? Also, what can faith communities do to be agents of change when it comes to the eradication of violence? And finally, how can faith communities promote approaches of thinking about the family unit in which men and women work as equal partners? These questions will be illuminated by four panelists, each of whom brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to us today. 
They are Rabbi Deborah Landsberg of Temple Emmanuel and executive team member of the Canadian Rabbinic Caucus. Ms. Nuzhat Jeffrey, executive director of the Canadian Council of Muslim Women. Taya Simons, coordinator of the Stop Violence Against Women Coordinating Committee. And Jennifer Moore Rattray, Chief Operating Officer at the Southern Chiefs' Organization, prior to which Executive Director of the Historic National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. A final word before I turn it over to the speakers, and it is this. The timing of our gathering is auspicious. We are here on the eve of the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women a day when the peoples of the world turn their attention to this important cause. Our event also comes only a few days away from the 100th anniversary of the passing of Abdu'l-Baha, the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Abdu'l-Baha's life was dedicated to the principle of the oneness of humanity, of which an indispensable element is the equality of the sexes. When Abdu'l-Baha was in Montreal in 1912, he spoke of this equality and how it will only be when men and women are given equal rights and opportunities that humanity will achieve true felicity and peace. And now I will turn it over to our speakers, each of whom will share their thoughts for about five to seven minutes. So without further ado, I invite our first speaker, Rabbi Deborah Landsberg, to take the floor. And I do want to thank you. Before I start, it is both an honor to be here. I can't say it's a full pleasure because I wish we didn't have this cause for us to gather and to be together. So I want to start with big picture from where I sit. And there is a rabbinic story that the Jewish people have within our tradition about God seeking to create humanity and the angels arguing about whether humanity should even be made at all. And the angel of kindness said, yes, humans will be kind. But the angel of truth said, no, humans will lie. The angel of justice said, the humans will be just. But the angel of peace said, no, humans would create such strife. And I start from a place that wants to acknowledge the messy complexity of our humanity and to recognize the way in which our faith traditions, however diverse they are, I think they call us to act from our best or better selves. And I also want to start with that large picture of simply acknowledging the power of our traditions and our communities to fundamentally shape what we believe and how we think and how we act. Because for most of us, I believe it's within the framework of our faith communities and traditions and teachings that we understand our place in the world, our role in it. So starting here in this conversation as we look at the question is so vital. And I also want to start by acknowledging the reality of violence against women. I'll start within the Jewish community. I think it could be especially hard to acknowledge in a minority community that doesn't want to look bad, that's concerned about how others look upon it, to acknowledge that this is a reality in the lives of too many within my community at the very least. And so how is it our traditions can help shape us? I think there's so many aspects to it. And what we believe is so much based on what sources we choose to turn to within, say, the tradition that I come from. There are sources I can lift up 
and there are sources I can let go of or just put aside in the corner. The very story of the creation of humanity and Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, there is an understanding from well over a thousand years ago that says, oh, in fact, it wasn't Eve made as a helpmate to Adam, but that humanity in our very self was created as a form of almost a hermaphroditic being, as male and female, as one equal creature, and the creation was a splitting. And why do I mention that? Our texts shape how we look at the question. And finding those texts that give us the ability to look differently at the role and the relationship between men and women and gender and all of that. We have painful texts that are hurtful, and then we have texts that can feel so liberating and which we choose to share in our communities and to teach. And what we think about the question of violence against women, and more than that, whether we think about it at all, I think is one of the key roles of faith communities because we either speak about it as a question that's vital to our communities and our communal health, let alone our individual health, or whether we're silent about it. And I guess I also want to say whether it's only women who talk about it or whether we, all of our identities within our community speak about it impacts how we understand it, impacts what we think about it, whether it is vital, whether it's trivial, whether it's just a women's issue. I know the question within um, the Jewish community is, how do we respond when we know it exists? And there are public questions. Do we give communal honors to people we know if they're committing violence within their private lives in their home? Do we take our communal resources and fund groups and support that's needed for those who need to escape violence, for those who need to learn ways other than violence? Do we allow people to make changes without shame? Because I think we know in our larger community, it's so hard to find support. (laughs) Um, And we have as a community, I think an obligation to take that on and not turn it over only to the secular government around us, but to understand this is something we want to speak within our own language and our own framework. Thank you very much, Rabbi Deborah Landsberg, for your um, comments really underlying the humility and openness that we need to take to this conversation, to confronting these issues, particularly within our own communities. Um, I would like to now turn the floor to our next speaker, um, Ms. Nushat Jaffrey from the Canadian Council of Muslim Women. Thank you so much um, for inviting us to participate in this discussion today. It it is on the eve of the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women that we are gathering to tackle this topic. And um, not that differently from what uh, Rabbi Landsberg was saying. You know, our faith is also based on principles of equality between uh, men and women and the principle of justice. So doing justice, you know, to all is a is a premise for our lives in, in Islam. And what's interesting is that whenever God is addressing, you know, his creations, he is always addressing believing men and believing women, men and women. So there's this sort of balance, you know, that he's not just talking to men about certain things. He's saying, 
believing men and believing women. And the only um, thing that God says that distinguishes one human being from another is their righteousness and, and their belief in, in him. So it's interesting that the premise is equality and justice. But unfortunately, like many faith traditions and many other non-faith communities as well, because as we know, uh, violence against women and girls doesn't just happen in particular communities. It's pervasive in our society. So what we've found is that when we are tackling this topic, we think it's very important to engage the entire community in discussions about it to prevent it, to eradicate it. And I'm going to give you an example of what we did to ensure that happened. So we, we undertook a project actually that focused uh, on engaging men and boys to end violence in the family. Uh, and as with all CCMW projects, that's the Canadian Council of Muslim Women projects, we begin with an Islamic perspective on the issues and then move to legal policy and programmatic and service considerations to help women deal with uh, particular situations or policymakers to deal with it and so on. So as part of our Engaging Men and Boys project, we commissioned research by two Islamic scholars, Professor Aisha Chaudhary and Professor Rumi Ahmed at UBC, and published the ensuing document. It's called Islamic Perspective on Engaging Men and Boys to End Violence in the Family. What the research illustrates is a distortion of interpretation of religious texts and traditional practices that are sometimes used to justify violence and inequitable treatment of women in some families, even though the, you know, their scriptures are clear about treatment of men and women being equitable and just. Um, there are lots of other, you know, tools that were developed for that for that engagement. But this is a, a, an issue that we've been dealing with ever since we began. Anyway, I know that I've probably taken up more time than was allocated to me, but there's a lot more to talk about. So I let the next speaker uh, take their place and then we'll come back if you have any questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Jaffrey, for your comments highlighting the importance of the inclusion and involvement of men and boys in our communities uh, in, in order to uh, reach our goal, the eradication of violence against women, that uh, it is not just a women's issue or something that women alone have to tackle. Thank you for your comments highlighting that point. Um, I'd like to turn it over to our next speaker, uh, who is Ms. Taya Simons. Um, please take the floor. Thank you. From the um, who's the coordinator of the Stop Violence Against Women Coordinating Committee, Taya. Please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. I just also want to say I'm very honored um, and happy to be here with you all. I also wanted to share that um, my sponsors are, are not on behalf of any agency I work with or the Baha'i community, rather that I'm coming from a feminist, anti-oppressive, anti-racist uh, framework from my education and experience working in the violence against women sector, which also practically and idealistically align with my beliefs of the principles of, of humanity's oneness and equality of the sexes, which is directly informed by the Baha'i faith. Um, so what I wanted to say on this question is when the standards and priorities of society shift 
focus away from the development of virtues. And when spiritual virtues are not a part of our regular discourse, it can become more difficult to lay that foundation for attitudes which uphold the rights of all members of society. So what happens instead is that those who are able to assimilate to that society's norms, um, including through coercion and dominance, are valued more highly than those who are unable to do so. And um, oftentimes, that people, um, women, are treated as weaker or as objects, both of which um, deny them that uh, respect that everyone deserves. And we know that in order to prevent violence against women, we need to first consider what the underlying causes of that violence are. So we cannot just look at the acts of violence or their effects, which are evident and obvious, and um, say you'll agree, um, but rather that the underlying conceptions of power as it relates to gender identity and the systemic disadvantages and cultural oppressions placed on women and girls that leave them at a higher risk of experiencing violence in their lives. So the perpetuation of this violence against any one group in our society is an outcome from a larger disease. It's a lack of spiritual values. Um, that violence against women is a symptom of a society that lacks in spiritual values. So this social ill will not be resolved by simply supporting all survivors or um, sheltering all those affected and outcasting those who have perpetuated the violence. We need to confront this social ill and redesign our social fabric to be conducive to reducing that violence and enhancing preventative measures and protection for women. We have to build a sustainable integrative structures that can both protect women from violence and eliminate those conditions that have been um, that have been allowing that violence to continue. So in order to do that, the hearts and the minds of people living within, working within, and building these structures of society need to be changed. In the Baha'i faith, we view the essential value of women and men to be the same in the eyes of God. So where the only differences really are in achievement, um, an aptitude between the genders uh, throughout history of uh, being a product of that continued oppression and denial of opportunities. So when religious communities focus on uh, strengthening that spiritual and moral value from a very young age and can encourage people through all phases of life to allow their higher nature, um, their higher selves, their moral compass, to guide them rather than allowing their lower nature, which can lead them to those unhealthy acts of greed and power and control, uh, then a foundation of character will be strengthened where people will choose to equally and equitably treat each other with kindness, compassion, and respect. Thank you very much, Taya Simons, for those insightful comments about really looking at the underlying causes of violence against women and how we can redesign our social fabric to um, put greater emphasis on spiritual values that can help to minimize those underlying causes. Thank you very much. And so with that, I will turn it to our last speaker for the event, uh, who is Ms. Jennifer Moore-Rattray, uh, Chief Operating Officer at the Southern Chiefs Organization. Jennifer, please. 
Thank you so much, uh, Afsoon. And uh, thank you so much to my um, amazing uh, co-panelists who are, are giving me lots of things to think about. Uh, I'm just so appreciative. Gawithama Danawa Nuihoa Jennifer Moore-Ratre, and I am really pleased to be with you today. I acknowledge that I am here on Treaty 1 territory in the heart of the Métis Nation in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, so the center of Turtle Island, um, and that wherever you are, uh, virtually, that we are all gathered on sacred land. I'm a really proud citizen of Papikasis Cree Nation in Saskatchewan with roots in northern Manitoba. And I'm also, as was mentioned, really proud to be the Chief Operating Officer with Southern Chiefs Organization. We represent 34 Anishinaabe and Dakota nations in what is now southern Manitoba. And um, it's, it's really a, a joy to, to do the work I do. Um, I was also honored, as was mentioned, to be the former Executive Director of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls for the last 14 months of the inquiry, uh, and that uh, definitely was an honor. Uh, we've been asked to speak today about the role of religion in eradicating violence against women, and I think the word religion is a really interesting one uh, as, as a First Nations uh, a woman. Many First Nations people would follow uh, traditional ways, which would not be defined as religion per se. Um, for, for many of us, the sacred is in everything we do all day. And uh, we would connect with our creator through smudging with one of the sacred medicines. Um, so tobacco, um, I've got some sage here, um, also cedar and sweetgrass. So those are our four, um, four of our most sacred medicines. So that's how we would connect with the creator and really in every interaction that we would have through the day. Um, many of us would also attend uh, a sweat lodge and other ceremonies, depending on where we're from and whether we are a Nabe or Dakota or Cree or Dene or Mi'kmaq or Blackfoot or, or anything else. Definitely some First Nations people have converted to Christianity um, and to any and all of the other major world religions. Um, a number of First Nations peoples would definitely appreciate elements of both traditional ways and also Christianity as an example and, and sort of blend, blend the two. Um, I think the simple answer to the question about the role of religion in eradicating violence against women is that we all have a responsibility, but in particular, I would say faith communities that should recognize and proclaim to recognize that every human being is sacred and that violence is against everything that is sacred. So it is true that the eradication of violence against women requires not only changes in law and policy, but more fundamentally, those changes at the level of culture and attitudes and beliefs. Um, the Southern Chiefs Organization recognizes that all Indigenous women and girls are sacred, that they are mothers and daughters and sisters and cousins and aunties and grandmothers and granddaughters, and wives and partners and friends and also leaders. Um, traditionally, women were valued in our communities, uh, yet today, due to colonization and racism and gender discrimination, First Nations women disproportionately face tragic and life-threatening gender-based violence. No one knows for sure how many Indigenous women and girls have been murdered or have gone missing in Canada. There are estimates of between three to 4,000. I suspect the number is much higher. Uh, and we're also, if we're talking about violence, uh, obviously, those numbers go up exponentially. We do know that Indigenous women and girls make up only 4% of the population and are disproportionately more likely to be murdered or go missing than any other women in Canada. 
So simply being indigenous and female is in itself a risk. So for First Nations people, it's not so much about a new culture and developing a new culture together, but more about returning to our culture and our languages and our traditional ways uh, that many of us lost through the residential school uh, system in that 150 year process. Uh, we're, we're, you know, back to a time where women were respected and held positions of power and as life givers were leaders and made decisions in the best interests of our communities. So how can religious communities contribute to rethinking the underlying causes of violence against women and what can faith communities do to be agents of change in this respect? Well, for many people, their faith community is a place of strength and a place of inquiry and also a place of reflection and self-reflection, uh, a place of the spirit. So it can be, and I think it needs to be a safe place for religious and spiritual leaders uh, to initiate those difficult discussions with their entire congregation or, or, or population, but also specifically as well with men who are primarily and statistically the perpetrators of violence. We have all heard the expression, hurt people, hurt people. Well, often male per uh, perpetrators have themselves been victims of violence. Uh, certainly that is the case in, in, in my community. Uh, now, to be very clear, this behavior should never be condoned. But to be addressed, we do need to provide places for men to heal and for men to understand that their masculinity is not dependent on control and violence. Now, I know here in Manitoba, from my time as an assistant deputy minister with the province, that there were, I think, two or three programs in total, and only one that I know of that did not have a waiting list for men who do not want to harm or want to learn not to harm their spouse or partner. And Manitoba is not the exception. Uh, and, and we do fund, as a society, we fund what we care about. We fund what we prioritize. I think we need to prioritize this. We often hear about the need for more shelters and traditional houses and programs for women wanting to escape violence, which is so critical. And we continuously and strongly advocate for this. But there's also a huge need um, uh, in Manitoba and across Canada. But at the same time, we also need to provide those programming and supports for men who want to change but don't know how. Um, at the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, we were asked to look into the very same questions that the, the panel is, um, is talking about today. You know, what is the root cause of the violence and what are the solutions? And during a two and a half year process, family members and survivors shared their truths, experts and knowledge keepers testified. We received literally thousands of recommendations from parties withstanding. And again, what did all of this evidence tell us? Well, that violence is fundamentally entrenched as a result of ongoing colonization in our systems and structures in Canada, in our religious systems and structures in Canada, and in Canadian society as a whole. The National Inquiry's final report really holds up the mirror to Canada, and our report delivered more than 230 calls for justice, and we've got them all in a handy little booklet here uh, for everybody. But while the National Inquiry was, of course, specific to the disproportionate violence against First Nations, Métis, Inuit women, girls, and 2S LGBTQQIA plus people, its recommendations will make Canada a safer place for all women and all girls. 
So as I wrap up, my, my continuing prayer is that this national tragedy will end and that, that all women and all girls will be safe and that we can make Canada the country that it was meant to be. We all have a role to play, especially faith communities, in coming together like we are today, challenging the status quo. Let's stand up. Let's speak up against violence wherever and whenever we witness it. Let's advocate together and create the programs and the services and the supports that are needed. We all have a right to safety, uh, to security, and to human dignity. So, Ego Sani, all my relations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jennifer Moratre, for your, your comments and uh, really highlighting the unique uh, position of Indigenous women and girls in this country and the challenges that they face uh, in terms of violence against this half of the population, but also against this small minority who is disproportionately affected. Thank you very much for all of your comments, all of the panelists. Um, it is now an opportunity for all of the participants to put forward any questions that they may have for our panelists. Uh, some questions have already come in. So as we wait for, um, uh, for more, as uh, people are very welcome to share their questions, we'll begin with the ones that we have. A few of them deal with uh, patriarchy and the historical role that patriarchy has had in leading um, to the position that we're in, in terms of the prevalence of violence against women. I wonder if any of the panelists have a comment on how we see patriarchy as one of the underlying causes of violence against women and what we can do about that, whether through our faith communities individually or with faith communities working with one another or considering the position of society as a whole. Uh, I will let uh, any of the panelists who wish, uh, who wish to jump in. We're all so polite. <laughs> I'll be very quick. I'll, I'll just say very quickly, I think patriarchy is something that was really inherent in uh, Western European culture. And so with colonization over the last 500 years, patriarchy has been exported around the world. Uh, to all the continents of the world. So I absolutely agree. Patriarchy is, a, is, is really, uh, in large part, the root of the problem. I think we really need to decolonize because of that. I really think we need to, to question uh, because of that. And really, as, as racialized peoples, as Indigenous peoples, reclaim uh, our traditional ways of being, um, which do not involve patriarchy. So really great comment about Indigenous spiritual practice that there is a lineage of matriarchy, absolutely. So I'll leave it there for the others, but uh, my quick comment. So I actually agree with Jennifer that a lot of the infusion of patriarchy, and I would say misogyny, you know, uh, did come through colonization. Because, you know, some of the earliest, you know, stories about the prophet, you know, indicate that he was inclusive. He included uh, women to lead prayers. You know, there's a very famous uh, story about someone named Um Waraka. She was invited to lead prayers. Uh, everybody thinks only a man can do that, for instance. And I don't know if you know this, but the first uh, university ever established in the, the Muslim world, once, you know, Muslims um, were present, uh, actually was established by a woman. You know, so there's a tradition of learning. There's a, a tradition of equity and, and sharing responsibilities. Uh, and while originally in Islam, you know, the, the roles were complementary. 
Well, in today's context, you know, they are they're equal. They they provide different kinds of uh, sustenance, you know, uh, to the family. But it started, you know, with some role definitions, but they were not inferior, you know, superior. They were specific roles uh, based on all kinds of things, you know, anatomy being one of them. So, so I think it's really interesting how these concepts have, um, you know, taken over our psyche now. And we believe that men can only head things or that men are the problem solvers and that will take care of, you know, families. And this is true, again, in all communities, not just ours. If I also have the space to speak to this, I want to honor and acknowledge, and I appreciate how this has been spoken of, the question of patriarchy so far. And I also want to share that Jewishly, my heart is racing because there is a tradition from within Christian feminism in the 70s and 80s onward that holds the Jewish people accountable for patriarchy on the large religious lens. When God, when the male God killed the goddesses. And there is, um, from where I sit, the uh, easy potential for, or I, I've, I've experienced the anti-Jewish animus that can come through in religious language around uh, patriarchy. And that's not what I've, I've heard from the co-panelists. I appreciate the difference, but I felt the need as well to acknowledge this because the question of the language we use around our understanding of the source of life is varied within traditions, let alone between different traditions. And this is, this language around patriarchy um, within the Jewish tradition, when it comes theologically, is one that's been thrown at uh, at Jews, at Jewish feminists, uh, in a way that I wanted to acknowledge. Thank you for that. Um, oh, Taya, please go ahead. Thank you. I I just wanted to to contribute to that saying, Kobe. Um, as we all know, that in many societies, boys are taught in one sense that girls need to be subservient, but at the same time, that power of expression, which um, women have cultivated re relating to emotional matters, has not been cultivated in boys and men. And this leaves that false dichotomy of believing that violence is useful and an acceptable tool for achieving whatever outcome um, they desire. Uh, but when girls are given that opportunity to be educated themselves and, and to advance their confidence and their capacity um, is strengthened and allows them to be more effective contributors to their society. And that when, on the other side, when boys see this, when boys see girls being educated, being included, being advanced, they also see um, how girls are, are valued are valued in that community, and that can happen in a family and, and in a faith community as well. So they begin to, to model the, the ways that these girls are being respected and empowered and um, esteemed. 
I think that's where religious and faith communities have such a vital role in providing that spiritual education that's aligned with the equality of women and men and that inherent um, morality latent um, in each person, that they have an important role to play in being that exemplar for people to turn to when they're structuring their families and societies, especially when when all around us are these patterns of social ills and, and aspects of a disintegrating society, um, including patriarchy, these faith communities can be that pillar of strength, exuding what a community free from gender-based violence and aligned with the oneness and equality at its core, what that can do. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have a, another question that asks about a concrete best practice um, there are so many, and the panelists have shared many suggestions from um, the rabbi's initial comments about the courage and humility it takes to bring up these issues within our own communities to make changes without shame. Um, and also in terms of really concrete things like polygamy or divorce, how to deal with these issues so that we don't perpetuate violence. Um, in terms of fostering spiritual values that uh, will really get at the root causes of such violence. And also, um, Jennifer talked about the uh, leaders initiating these difficult conversations. And of course, among the 230 calls for action, I'm sure there are many um, that are concrete that, that deal with this. But I'm going to give the panelists the very difficult task of perhaps choosing one, a really best practice that we could highlight. Um, perhaps each of you, if you have one, could share one. And I think that will bring us uh, close to the end of our panel. So hopefully I've talked enough to let you have a moment to <laughs> think about your best practice. And uh, I'll turn it over to whoever would like to go first. I can go first. Um, and, and I think the best practice, a foundational practice um, in, our, in our community that really, you know, the First Nation community, my, com my community has been through so much a trauma uh, with the residential schools, with the, uh, you know, the day schools, the 60s scoop, um, the uh, CFS system, uh, Child and Family Services System, which has become the new residential school in terms of impact. So I think the most healing thing that I've seen or best practice that's really foundational to everything else is uh, for so many in my community is going back to nature, going back to the land, um, going back to traditional practices, going back to places that heal us. And, you know, science is just starting to catch up with all of that. But the 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 healing power of, of being near water, the healing power of being on the land, the healing power of trees, the healing power of being out in nature. And I think you know, that may seem simplistic. Um, and I know, you know, I've talked about the programs and services that I think were needed. Um, there's some, some, you know, amazing ideas about uh, multi-faith groups of women working together, which I love. Um, but I think at the root of it, um, each one of us is only as good as our own level of healing. And each of us and, and each of our communities have been through incredibly horrendous things, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, incredibly horrendous difficulties. So I think for us to, uh, to maintain our, our health, our spiritual health, um, and, and for us to be able to, as, as communities, to be able to, to move to a world where there isn't violence takes healing. And so for me, 
it is uh, going back to the land and going back to nature. So Egosani Chumigwech, and I hold my hands up to, to all of you today and to all of you who are with us virtually. Thank you. That is a, a very profound indeed, simple but profound. Taya, you wanted to chime in. Yes, thank you. So as we know, eradicating violence against women, um, many things are, are needed. Like community and social services need to expand to include holistic approaches for supporting families experiencing violence and those at risk of perpetuating violence. And the justice system needs to evolve. And voices of survivors, of people with lived experience of violence, need to be included and integrated in that prevention work. And um, collaboration between these systems need to be implemented at all levels. There are so many things that could go on and on. But um, what I think is truly required to make a difference in any of these spheres is the character of the people who are putting forth such efforts. And this is where, again, faith communities can be agents of change in helping to strengthen and construct societies that are free from gender-based violence by changing how people view and treat one another. So our faith and our, our religions can um, connect us to that purpose in life and help us to identify who we truly are as moral and spiritual beings. And um, from the Baha'i faith, we know that this capacity of education in transforming people, which can really uplift mankind. So if we know that the sexes are inherently equal and we have this ideal of gender equality, um, which also aligns with that principle of the oneness of mankind, then uh, these faith communities can really help people learn about issues that are hindering the equality of women and men, including stereotyping gender roles and accepting violence as a form of conflict resolution and to learn about the conditions that will actually enhance gender equality. And with these understandings, then we can build our capacity both individually and as a community to respond to violence against women. Mm, thank you, Taya, for really underscoring um, the, the role of religious communities in educating uh, those who are part of our communities and out, outside of our communities, um, the, the impact of education and transforming attitudes, beliefs, ways of thought really cannot be overestimated. Did anyone else want to chime in? Okay, we've got one, uh, one so, minute left. <laughs> sorry, I know I'm going to be quick. So in my opening remarks, I talked about engaging men and boys to end violence in the family or, or gender-based violence. That's critical. Men and boys are allies. Treat them as allies. You know, knowing that most congregations are led by men still, the imams, engage them, invite them to your events, educate them about the issues. And one of the most effective ways is for women to tell their own stories about what's happened to them. And when they hear them, they relate to them in a very human way and understand and empathize and want to do something about it. So treat men and boys and our religious and spiritual leaders as allies. I can let me just say yes. Please go ahead. And anything I would have wanted to say has already been given voice to with such power and poetry and uh, and passion. So yes, 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 <laughs> and yes. <laughs> Indeed, I, I echo that. Thank you, Rabbi. Yeah, we've had really a lot of um, insightful comments and questions as well. I know we could talk about this for hours, uh, but sadly our time has has come to an end. It's um, 
amazing how fast time flies when you're talking about this important topic with our wonderful speakers and how slowly time can pass in in other instances especially in moments of such violence. So I would really like to honor um, the women and girls who have been the subject of our conversation today. Um, it's, it's wonderful for us to, to come together in peace and with love to discuss this. But as we said at the outset, it is um, really one of the greatest injustices in our society. And uh, it is the hope of myself and I'm sure everyone here uh, that we have taken a step forward today in our own small way through this panel discussion to uh, the continuing eradication of violence against women. So with that, I would like to thank our speakers, Rabbi Deborah Landsberg, Nizhat Jeffrey, Taya Simons, Jennifer Moratre. I would like to thank the supportive organizations of this event, the Southern Chiefs Organization, Stop Violence Against Women Coordinating Committee, Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs and the Canadian Council of Muslim Women. I would also like to thank the event's host, the Office of Public Affairs of the Baha'i Community of Canada. And if you would like more information on that office, you can visit opa.baha'i.ca. And I would like to thank all of you, uh, the participants, for attending, for being part of the conversation through the questions and uh, while we are still are in the in the Zoom format, um, I can feel the energy of the group nonetheless. Uh, may the insights and understandings we've gained this afternoon illuminate the rest of our day and indeed the rest of our lives. So with that, I thank you all very much and wish you a wonderful day. Goodbye. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i Faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at opa.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.